This is Ken Stusen. I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. Welcome to our NOW 2020 podcast. NOW stands for Navigating Our World. We are simply trying to understand the world better to navigate some of the most pressing questions that are shaping our lives, our culture, and our investment challenges. How will we navigate the future of capitalism, climate change, our geopolitical relationships, and perhaps most importantly, how will the coronavirus pandemic affect these questions and so many others? For the time being, the pandemic has shrunk our physical worlds. As they open up again, they might very well have changed forever. What will those changes look like? Now 2020 is the place where we'll bring together thoughtful experts and people who are trying to make a difference. As we look to the future, the one thing we know for sure is that none of us can figure this out on our own. At Brown Advisory, we are focused on raising the future. And we hope these now conversations will help do just that. Welcome. Perhaps the word I've heard most often during the coronavirus pandemic is unprecedented. The pandemic itself, the measures taken around the world to contain it, the disruption to our way of life, to our economy, and the challenges of getting back to work. These are unprecedented times. But as more is written about the pandemic, more parallels to other times in history are being made. We know there's a lot to learn from the past, and that can help us move forward. I'm Mike Hankins, CEO of Brown Advisory. We are joined today by John Meacham, historian, Pulitzer Prize winning author, and perhaps best known as someone who was extremely helpful at putting things in perspective. John joined us for our now 2018 conference in Washington, DC. It was just before the release of his book, Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. We may still be looking for them. John gave us a thoughtful window into when America has faced challenging times before, and his insight helped us to understand how we got through them. John, it's, it's good to be with you again, even if virtually. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. First, how are you doing? Is your family with you? I hope everybody is healthy. We are, and everyone is still speaking to each other, at least with a modicum of civility, but we have a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 12-year-old, so I'm not hopeful that that will continue, but uh, we're staying at home in Nashville and um, very lucky, given the, the scope of the, of the pandemic, to be able to do it and to think about the kinds of things we're talking about, so we're, we're very fortunate. That's good to hear. We are day 31. Uh, nobody has uh, killed anybody yet on the farm here. <laughs> We're very feeling very lucky as, as well. Good. So it's hard to believe the world has turned itself upside down this quickly. It's a crucible, right? We're in, we're in a social, political, cultural crucible where the flame, to, to torture the metaphor a bit, the, the flames, the intensity of common effort of our need to sacrifice individual appetites for a broader good is, this is the starkest that demand of us has been since the Second World War, where goods and services were diverted from their ordinary private pursuit to a public end. 
And so it's really, that's the most analogous situation. Nuance within that, though, is that though we had a briefer war than Great Britain, to me, this feels as though we are in London in 1940 and 41. Everyone is a combatant. The Luftwaffe was dropping bombs. Anyone could be struck at any time. There was no rhyme nor reason to it. And it was an unusual, unprecedented moment where civilian populations were forced into, in that sense, the crucible of war. Now we're in the crucible of public health and everything depends, our economic life, our the future of our political life, our affections, our friendships, our, our very being, depends on our capacity to sublimate personal desire to a common good. And a lot of us like to tell ourselves that we would do that if called upon. And that's been a theoretical question for a long time since the Second World War. Now it's a real one. It really is a stark reminder of how fragile our way of life can be. That's a good word. Fragile is, is a great word. I, I'm not, an, as you know, I, I'm not an alarmist about the American future. I believe that we're on a journey toward a more perfect union. Uh, at any point in the last 250 years, this experiment could have, could have fallen apart. So I, I'm fundamentally an optimist about that. But it's a remarkable test of our capacity to see that the things we take for granted are fragile. And in our political life, you know, there are people who believe that the 2016 election was putting us on the road to authoritarianism, to totalitarianism, to all sorts of things. We are always because of the nature of, of, of human history, we're always on a precipice. And a strong wind, one way or the other, can, can make all the difference. And now that is literally true. Someone coughing in the grocery store can make a difference. And I think it's, it's a good reminder, certainly stark to use your term, a stark reminder of how contingent not only life is, but history is. I was lucky to have a mentor, a wonderful man who lived through the Depression, served in the Navy in World War II. And when he's long gone, sadly, but when he and I would go through what could go wrong, and it was mostly around the economy and the market. Mm -hmm. It was a luxury to think through those terms alone. He would say, Michael, it's always something it's always going to be something that you, you will not expect. Right. And this is before the concept of black swans was written about. For him, it was just the obvious. And, and having lived through that period, he knew that things could change more quickly than our, my generation would ever expect, that it will always be something. And it's something that the, I guess the greatest generation new and and we just never appreciate it. Well, you know, one of the things I've always thought about is that history is often made by men with guns and it can be one person 
with a gun, right? It can be Archduke Ferdinand in 1914. It can be Lee Harvey Oswald in, in Dallas in 1963. It can be James Earl Ray in Memphis in 1968. It was almost John Hinckley in Washington in March of 1981 when President Reagan was shot. One of the things, if you do what I do for a living, you always think about, this is sort of my equivalent of, of the kinds of conversations you had, is what would happen if, what would have happened if, and one of the, you know, Thomas Carlyle and others, Plutarch, beginning with Plutarch, running through Carlyle, we, we we've always had this debate in history, and it's also true in economic activity, right, of what shapes human behavior? What would be different if that individual or that person had not been in that certain place when something happened? And in 1932, December, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was the president-elect of the United States. He was on a cruise down off the Florida coast on uh, Vincent Astor's yacht, and they stop in Miami, and they go into town, and an anarchist shows up and takes a shot at the president-elect of the United States. Uh, he hit the mayor of Chicago, who happened to be in the car next to FDR. What would have happened to the 1930s and 1940s? What kind of America would we be living in if Franklin Roosevelt had died in December of 1932? A year before, Winston Churchill had been visiting in New York and after a fairly liquid evening, which just meant he was awake, he steps out on Fifth Avenue, and instead of looking right, he looked left because he forgot he was in New York and not London, and he was hit by a car. Almost died. What would the 1930s and the 1940s in our own era look like if Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill had died in the early 1930s? And I don't think, to me, there's no question that the world would be different and worse if that had happened. Here's the remarkable thing about this moment. We are now all in the position of a Roosevelt and a Churchill. It's not just about the leaders. It's about the followers. We have it in our hands to stop this paralyzing, depleting pandemic or not. And there's this mysterious covenant from the leader to the follower that shapes our destiny. And in this case, we are all fully empowered in a way that is unfamiliar to us, I think. You know, if you do what I do for a living, you, you, I write books about presidents. I write books about the people who reach the pinnacle and make decisions that affect millions. This is a case where the decisions of millions will shape that history. John, let me shift to why we are doing this podcast. It's the first in a series. It is, of course, a substitute for our now 2020 conference, originally scheduled for April 21st, 2020. The purpose of our now conferences is to tee up the most compelling issues of the day. Now stands for navigating our world, our conferences, and this podcast are intended to help us do just that. The agenda for this year's conference was centered around polarization, how divided this country and the world at large seem to be. It's a big part of our lives. Before the coronavirus, it was on everyone's minds. 
Without taking sides, we wanted to understand how we could navigate through or around the challenges of our polarized times. John, at the conference, you were going to be the kickoff speaker. We wanted you to help put things in perspective for us. And now I think we need to hear from you more than ever. So are we as polarized as we feel at times? And, and how do we move beyond this? We are polarized. Uh, we are driven by tribal passions at a level that I think is akin to where we were in the 1850s. And we know how that decade turned out. The question we have to ask is, is our level of partisan division of our polarization, is it a difference of degree in American history or is it a difference of kind? Are we in an entirely different uh, zip code, if you will? I still believe that it is a difference of degree because it is a powerful human impulse to uh, we fall prey to, to two things. Uh, we have a sin of nostalgia and a sin of narcissism. And the nostalgia is to look back and impose order on what William James called the blooming, buzzing confusion of reality. It's a natural instinct to arrange, rearrange events into a coherent narrative. But that nostalgia is dangerous because it tends to minimize the depth of conflict, the ferocity of the confrontations that took place to shape the world in which we live. The narcissism comes in, which is related. It's a cousin of the nostalgia, which is we tend to think that our problems are uniquely oppressive. They are insuperable. They are entirely unique. When, and in my, this is my argument, this is not entirely unique. 100 years ago, we had a global flu pandemic at a moment of great international chaos, uh, the end of the First World War, which smashed, in the words of the old Anglican hymn, Earth's proud empires, the rise of nationalism, uh, the proliferation of independence movements around the world, a much more globalized economy. 1920 was the census in which America went from being a majority rural nation to being a majority urban nation. There were waves of immigration that produced a sharp reaction, including the founding of the Second Klan in 1915, that rose to have two to six million Americans who were members of the Klan. The 1924 Democratic National Convention went to 103 ballots at Madison Square Garden because there were 347 Klan delegates who would not vote for Al Smith, the governor of New York, to be the Democratic nominee because he was an Irish Catholic. And it was all about fighting immigration. The governor of Georgia, who had lost an election, not being a member of the Klan, joined and won, gave a speech in Kansas City in 1921, which is uh, so 100 years ago, which used to seem like a long time until I got older, gave a speech saying that we needed to build a wall of steel as high as heaven to keep immigrants out. So what else happened in the 1920s? Isolationism, the kind of dreamy pursuit of peace, you know, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, protectionism. We had a 
burst of false prosperity. And then by the end of the decade, of course, because of global issues and domestic ones, we end up in, in a Great Depression. So that moment, for instance, was entirely partisan. You, you had a relentless tendency if you were a Republican, if you were a Northerner, if you were a Southerner, if you were a Democrat, if you were an immigrant, if you had been native-born, those life experiences shaped your political choices, your economic choices. And we end up in the early 1930s requiring this remarkable reordering of who we were and how we were going to operate in the public sphere a hundred years ago. And so are we more polarized than the Republican and Democratic parties of 1932? It feels that way because it's our experience. So of course it, it would. But I know people want to think that CNN and MSNBC and Fox News created all of this. But if we were that divided in the 1930s and 1940s, then and and came through it. My argument is we have to study those eras, figure out what it was that held us together, and let us move forward from there. One quick final thought on that. One of the things that is interesting is def let's define our terms, right? So, what is a nation? Pretty fundamental question, right? kind of hard to define sometimes. Is it by blood? Is it by religion? Is it by idea, geography? Well, St. Augustine, and you haven't had St. Augustine thrown at you in a long time, I suspect, but he said that a nation is a multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their love. I want to repeat that. A multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their love. It's a great definition. And there are two elements to it, right? There's rationality. We have to use reason. We have to react to data. We can't simply be superstitious and, and theological. And we also have to love certain things in common. And the great strength of the American experiment is that we have loved just enough in common to survive these crucible moments before. So you mentioned CNN and MSNBC. The press is a much maligned fourth branch of government right now. Deep down, it, it seems like the issue is not the press, but are we getting at the truth? And certainly the way we hear things and read about things has changed with the, the advent of sort of instant forms of social media like Twitter. Has it changed forever? I mean, what are the challenges that you see for us as citizens to get enough of the truth to make decisions? It's a, it, it may be, that question may be as well as the, the basic question of prosperity and the shared nature of, of economic growth and the future of, of a middle class. No democracy has ever taken root and survived without a, a middle class. That was a, an insight from Aristotle forward. Uh, that you needed people who believed in the rule of law, who believed that the social contract was worth the investment and the surrender of certain rights because they believed that 
hard work would be rewarded. Uh, Lincoln called it an open field and a fair chance for our industry, intelligence, and enterprise. You know, you, you have to have that. And our relationship to information and our capacity to defend the role of reason against passion is the central question of the time, it seems to me. And my perhaps overly grand, but still heartfelt view is that the, um, the American moment where there was a more common national conversation for shorthand purposes, it's the age of Cronkite, right? The, the idea that we all at a certain hour sat down absorbed certain facts, and then decided what to do with them, right? I mean, 1968, the country almost fell apart. Uh, the struggle over civil rights, the struggle against the war in Vietnam, uh, you just had assassinations, you know, just, just madness, madness everywhere. But there was a common story. That moment, that age of Cronkite, was an exception. It only lasted about 40 years or so. NBC and CBS were founded in 23, 24, 25. Radio went into mass production in 1921. Television, of course, comes along in 46, 47. And we had something called the Fairness Doctrine. And the Fairness Doctrine, because we own, the public owns the airwaves, the idea was you could not take an explicitly political stand without giving a reflection of differing views. And most places just didn't want to deal with it. And that was undone in 1986 as part of a basic Reagan deregulation. Interestingly, Rush Limbaugh goes national in 1988. AM radio becomes, we forget this to some extent, that that was Fox News before there was Fox News, was the AM radio of the late 80s, early 90s. Limbaugh was so important by 1992, that his support for Pat Buchanan, his challenge against George H.W. Bush in the 1992 primaries, Buchanan damn near won the New Hampshire primary in 1992. And then, of course, Fox is founded in 96, MSNBC is founded in, in 96. And we have this tribal news culture at, at the moment. It is a besetting issue. I am not sure how to fix that. Except that I do believe, you know, I'm a Jeffersonian, Jacksonian guy. I do believe that in the fullness of time, the people tend to get it right. And I justify that by the argument that for all of our problems, for all the issues we're talking about, most of us still believe the American experiment, the American nation state, the American economy is worth defending, preserving, reforming, and pushing forward. And so we are roughly in a common cause there. And so question is, can you reach a decisive percentage of the population with facts that may not fit the predisposed inclination of that voter, of that investor, of that consumer. And I have a pet theory. I'm not sure I've ever articulated this, so this is, a, this is my first uh, floating of the theory, that there's about 10% of the country that's persuadable. And I come to that number this way. I was trying to think the other 
month. How do we, what's the metric of bipartisanship, right? And there, I have a lot of political science colleagues and others who analyze voting patterns in the House of Representatives and try to impose order on that, on that chaos. But I was thinking, you know, more, more broadly, what, what is it? And it occurred to me that the one way to judge this might be what percentage of Democrats or Republicans in modern history have crossed the aisle in a presidential election and voted for the other guy? Because that's a fairly, seems to me a fairly good number to look at because it's in an exit poll. So you have to tell someone you did it as you're leaving the poll, polling place, back when we went to polling places. And so I looked at that. Our numbers go from 1952 to 2016. Eisenhower got about 40% of Democrats. Lyndon Johnson in 1964, the big landslide, got about 40% of Republicans. 1972, Richard Nixon, that huge landslide against McGovern, gets about 40% of Democrats. And then the number collapses to where you have a very narrow number. Now, part of that is because all those Democrats who voted for Richard Nixon in 1972 became Republicans. So the two numbers that give me my 10% is in 2000, 9% of Democrats told pollsters that they had voted for George W. Bush. So fairly, when you think about the, the ferocity of that election and how narrow it was, that's a fairly interesting number. And it's clearly what, what made the difference. So 9% of Democrats voted for George W. Bush. 13% of Republicans in 2008 voted for Barack Obama. And there was almost no, over, almost no crossing the aisle in 2016. So 13%, 9%, about 10% of the country I think is reachable by the Biden campaign going forward. And where that 10% lands and where they are geographically will determine that presidential election. Let's turn to the pandemic for a moment. Some people saw this coming. Why is that, that there always seems to be someone who sees something coming and we don't listen to them? Bill Gates gave a TED Talk in 2015 around this very topic. And it's, it's not the first time in history we've received a warning. How are you thinking about this? And why don't we listen to people who are thoughtful, who give us a sense of what might happen? It's human nature. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. <laughs> I mean, Homer. <laughs> we don't. I mean, we don't have to go to you know uh, Dr. Fauci here. We can go <laughs> to the fall of Troy. Cassandra, right? Bill Gates is the Cassandra. You know, the the person who warns, and people don't pay attention. There's the you know the telegram uh, that went to the Titanic uh, about the ice. You know, this is who we are. Uh, we're flawed. We're fallen. We're fallible. Who wants to be the person who inflicts hardship, discipline, and pain? If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. We're not ready for the next epidemic. The bad news isn't just bad, the bad news is uh, actually terrible. Highest single day death 
told yet. In the Democratic primary, before the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion about the capitalist system. Was it serving us well? Now in the throes of the pandemic, we're seeing evidence that the virus is impacting the less fortunate in our society much more severely. Do you believe that there will be space in in the general election campaign to go back to this debate about how well we're looking after the less fortunate? I do. And I think it's, to some extent, the American capacity for cognitive dissonance about the role of the state in the marketplace is epic, right? People despise government and yet manage to take their mortgage interest deduction, right? You know, so I, I've, I've always been, I've tried to be vigilant about falling into either camp of a government can solve everything and we need, uh, if public action were unified, everything would be fine. And the more Adam Smith, Milton Friedman view that the state needs to stay out of as much as, as much as possible. What's so interesting about this moment, and I'm sure you're hearing this now from all the people you work with, is if you and I had, had talked six weeks ago and we said, you know what, two to four to six trillion dollars in public spending is going to be made available in the next month, you would have hung up on me because you would thought there's a crazy person on, on the phone. To me, the question for the fall and going forward is not should government be in, should the public sphere be involved in in trying to stabilize the economy and income, but how do we do it intelligently, and how do we not overwhelm a system that has by and large created more prosperity, more jobs, a level for the pursuit of happiness that that so many of us believe in deeply? One of my other theories. I, really, I feel like I'm, I'm, we're in a therapeutic uh, conversation. I'm just sharing my my dreams with you. But one of my uh, thoughts is 1933 to 2016, 2017 can, in many ways, in America, be understood as a figurative conversation, a figurative debate between FDR and Ronald Reagan. And there were two central questions, right? There was a question of what's the relative role of the state in the marketplace and what's the relative projection of force against commonly agreed upon foes and rivals. And through Obama, that was the field on which presidents and congresses of each party dealt. That was the field on which they played. I have run this theory, by the way, by both George W. Bush and Obama, and they both agree with it. So I, I have that. And the only other thing they agree on is Michelle. So that's a victory for me. 2017 forward has not been a coherent chapter in that conversation, right? Because you have a, a free trade party that's become more a protectionist party, all the, all the reasons we know. So to me, the election is going to be about... Do you want someone who cares about government managing the next few years in which government is going to be more a part of the economy? Or do you want someone who is less interested in that and it has to be dragged into doing it? Do I think this is a referendum on capitalism? No, I don't. And our capacity, this goes back to the American thing again, our capacity 
to suspend our theoretical beliefs in the face of a crisis is something that I think is remarkable. I think it's rational, too, by the way. So you, you, you were, that, that, that is a rational reaction. Can I ask you a question? So when you talk to clients, when you talk to colleagues, where do they fall on this capitalistic versus socialistic? Do they understand that? I mean, are they against this size of a bailout? Are they against uh, what the Fed's doing, what the government's doing because of ideological reasons? Or do they support it because of the nature of the moment? So I, I, th- I think I would have to preface by saying that the last 20 years, maybe 30 years, we have lived a time where we haven't had to spend a lot of time thinking about do we believe in capitalism and what pressures are on it and how do, how do we articulate how we feel about government and capitalism. So some of these issues are getting thrown at us and thrown at our families and friends and, and, and clients and colleagues really for the first time. So it, it's not, I don't think people are appreciating at first blush that this is a, a very serious move by government and is likely to change the relationship between the citizen and government in ways that, that we don't know yet. So, and I, I don't think that it's because people don't believe in in uh, our system of government and, and don't believe in capitalism. I think they very much do. I just think they haven't had to consider something that is so um, so foreign to it and to the bedrock of why they believe in, in capitalism. So I, I, I'm not sure it's a very clear answer, but I think we're all struggling with it. I mean, wow, several trillion dollars of government spending you know, on, on top of a, uh, a budget that was a trillion dollars in debt so I, I think it's still being understood, and not until that we feel the effects of it, the negative effects of it, will I be able to answer that question as right. in a clearer way. All right. My sense is, as you say, it's, it's such early days that we're, the light, lightning has struck, right? And we're still kind of trying to regain, we, we're all seeing double still, and are trying to, trying to, see things more clearly but I I do think it doesn't take that many people to see clearly and want something different for American politics to shift because it is so to go all the way back to where we started because of the polarization there is a vanishingly small number of people who can determine the terms of the conversation and the shift in, insofar as there would be a shift in not just tone, but substance, if there were a change. One of my favorite books is Franklin and Winston. I'm, re- I'm rereading it right now. And, and uh, one of the most special parts was just seeing that that my oldest daughter had given it to me back in uh, 2003 for Christmas, I think. She may be the youngest person who bought that book. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm lucky to have each of our kids are history buffs. But how, how would 
each of Roosevelt and Churchill have led through this crisis? Well, fortunately, I can answer that because they did, right? The first hundred days, you know, Franklin Roosevelt becomes president on March 4th, 1933. He stands on the east front of the Capitol. He says the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning fear that paralyzes our advance. Fascinating, isn't it, that he used the word paralyze? He had taught himself to walk again. He thought he could teach the country to walk again. He was wrong a lot, but it didn't bother him because he saw himself as a baseball player. If he could hit 250, 275, he would get signed up again. And he communicated clearly, honestly. He admitted when he was wrong. He said, I want a bold, persistent sense of experimentation I'm going to try a method, and if it fails, I will admit it frankly and try another. But above all, I will try something. And he reordered, most important president since Lincoln, obviously, he reordered the relationship of the individual and the government in a world that we're still roughly living in. But he believed in candor. Didn't always believe it in his private life, as his wife would tell you, but in public candor. And he said, the news is going to get worse and worse before it gets better and better. And the American people deserve to have it straight from the shoulder. And so he told the truth as best he could. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Churchill was remarkably uh, the same way. But Churchill believed in two things. One was he was not going to preside over the enslavement of England. And if that were a possibility, he was going to die in the streets. So he gave all of himself to this in an existential struggle. And he believed with Roosevelt that if he didn't level with us, if he did not tell us everything he knew within you know, security bounds, and if he didn't prepare people for a long struggle, blood, toil, tears, and sweat now seems like a great rallying cry. Think about what it says, though. It means we're going to bleed, we're going to cry, we're going to work, and we're going to sweat. No, thank you. I'm good. But he insisted on that. And he said in 1942 that the British people can face any misfortune with fortitude and buoyancy as long as they are convinced that those who are in charge of their affairs are not deceiving them or are not themselves dwelling in a fool's paradise. So it's an interesting two-pronged test, right? In modern democracies, then as now, in the Churchill dialectic, we want to know, A, that you are telling us the truth, and B, that you're telling yourself the truth, that you're not dwelling in some surreal world. And if we can check both those boxes, we'll do what it takes. And we did it in the middle of the 20th century. We did it during the Cold War, what Kennedy called the long twilight struggle. And I'm convinced we can do it again. John Meacham, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. 
For me, your reflection on today's challenges in the context of historical ones is reassuring. We will get through this, and with your insight, I think we will all be better at navigating these times. Lastly, it's hard for me to think of you without thinking of your role at Barbara Bush's and President Bush's funeral services. In listening to your eulogies of them, no one could help appreciate how close you were to them, how personal your remarks were. You've become an important part of our history, not just an observer. Thank you for that. Oh, it's very kind. Thank you. It was the, on- the honor of a lifetime, and they were great embodiments of the best we can be. You know, think about others first, try hard, do your best. And it's hard to imagine any better counsel as we go forward now. Thanks, Mike. 